Welcome to Behavioral Health in the New Normal, a podcast developed by Prestige Community Resources, aimed at bringing healing back to our community through knowledge, expert advice, and positive messaging. The show is a joint venture between the Department of Behavioral Health and Prestige Community Resources, funded by SAMHSA in response to the challenges currently impacting our communities. Hosted by Paul Wells Sr., who uses over 30 years of extensive clinical social work experience to conduct insightful interviews with experts and professionals on a wide range of topics that impact the Washington, D.C. community. From behavioral health crisis to education to financial hardship and anything in between, this show will provide information and insights that will surely make a difference in your life. Welcome back to the podcast series offered by Prestige Community Resources in conjunction with the Department of Behavioral Health. Hey, family, I'm so excited today. I know I talk about my excitement, but today I'm really, really excited because I have a dear friend I've known for so many years who's going to share her experience about the journey through mental health and her subsequent landing in a very uh, solid place of stability and success. Her name is Lachelle Rivers. Miss Rivers, welcome to the podcast today. How are you? How you doing? I haven't oh, seen you in a minute. I know. It's pandemic. Been some <laughs> I know. It's, we're going to talk about that pandemic and, and how, how it's altered relationships and how people engage. But let me yeah. tell the audience before we get to really know you, kind of what the theme is today. Of course, the topic is crying out for help. The, the goal is for you to share experiences as an active mental health consumer about how COVID-19 and the pandemic has changed how you receive services. We're going to really focus on telehealth and virtual okay. health. And hopefully you can share in this podcast the struggles and differences between in-person therapy and virtual therapy and the struggles of isolation during the pandemic and the ways to cope with it. And then we're really going to focus on this book that you've authored called Hey Home Girl. Oh yeah, my hey goodness, this tells your journey through 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 a lot. And I'm not going to give all the yeah. details. I'm not going to give all the details. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. But the audience, Miss <laughs> Miss Rivers was born in Washington, D.C., uh, and grew up in the nation's capital during the 1980s. And she moved to a racist location during the drug crisis, and she faced being the regular female with a family containing killers, drug dealers, and dysfunction. <sighs> Having yeah. mental health at her home and insecurities within, Miss Rivers developed a mental illness in her early 20s. She went to prison. She experienced yeah. a devastating car accident that nearly took her life. And all of these factors collectively ultimately changed her life forever. Now, guess what? Today, she's an author, an artist, and a social media influencer. So you can't tell me uh, people cannot pull themselves and empower themselves and move to a place of, of, of success. So, Ms. Reverend, just tell us a little bit about your background. Let's let's start with where you grew up and where you went to school, oh, because let's lay the foundation so that the audience can really appreciate your movement and your growth. Well, the thing is, um, all right, my movement and my growth, I grew up over here before a lot of things changed on Northwest, where Dunbar High School is, Fifth Street, Northwest and such, and um, that's when it was fun. <laughs> yeah. We could play outside. We didn't have the phones and all those things. We actually 
went down the sliding board. Merigo rounds were still a, a thing, wow. you know, and that's right. That's right. And such. But um, then it came to times when we start picking up needles and playing with them and, you know, seeing somebody shot, you know, and things like that. The crisis started happening. Um, so mom wanted to give me, well, it's just me and her because my brother and sister had grown up by then. So me and her got to Virginia. And um, that's where I had to figure things out on my own, pretty much, because she was always at work. How old were you when you moved to Virginia? That was fourth grade when I moved to Virginia. I started fifth grade out there. So I guess that's about 10 years old, 10, 11 years and old. I, and I'm sure you experienced a big cultural shift. Yeah, um, because there are still trailer parks out there <laughs> as far as, you know, before. You know, um, I was in the Fairfax part, and there's a huge mall section out there, um, and they were still building it, you know, in the Fairfax part, you know, Tyson's Corner. It was still, none of that stuff was out there. A lot of so you grew up in the 80s, and that was right at the height of the drug epidemic, and so your family, your mom was was very aware and sensitive to that and tried to move you from the devastation, the destruction, the addictive lifestyles. Uh, unfortunately, at some point, you kind of gravitated towards some of that stuff. Well, this is how that started. See, we're going to go into mom <laughs> because her and my dad were going through divorce before we went to Virginia. My father was a drinker and a weed head. So mm -hmm. that wasn't anything big to me. He couldn't hold on. You know, he was on and off jobs and stuff. But, you know, he watched me. Um, mom started having affairs. And one of those affairs just happened to be, she was breaking up with him, but he held on to her and he was addicted to crack. And, and um, so my mother fell in love with a crackhead and he was very abusive. I put it like that as far as, you know, my father and she moved him out there with us to Virginia. She had to have, she was one of those got to have a man women. I got you to call it. She got to do You know, she, her focus was on him and not me. Put it that way. Okay. She focused on him. And so based on her emotional abandonment of you, that then kind of changed the direction of your development and your attitude and kind of where your focus was, I imagine. Um, yeah, because it, it changed my focus as far as, I mean, I was always into art. Mm -hmm. Like they had me in gifted and talented classes at kindergarten and first grade, but I didn't know, you know, mm -hmm. what that was. And um, they, when we moved to Virginia, they had me in them as well. Not as much attention was coming towards me as far as I always saw myself as that I'm money. You know, I can draw, I can sing, I'm playing an instrument. If right. you are the right parent with a child, like you can, you know, right. do something with me. But you were considered a gifted child. You had some yeah. natural, instinctive gifts that um, that your your training and, and experience in school was um, trying to actually encourage and influence and, 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 and develop. Now, so you were a pretty good student in school, were you? Yeah, drugs came late. I'll put it to you that way. Drugs didn't okay. come till my 20s, until after high school graduation. Okay, that's remarkable. You got, <laughs> you got completely through high school, and then at some point you started using drugs? Yeah, what happened was I was going for the Air Force. Um... My sister's in, nah, I had, I had to get away from mom. I moved in with my sister. I was going to go for the Air Force. Mm -hmm. And first time I, you know, actually smoked marijuana and I felt that I was like, oh, well, hell with the Air Force. Can't go in there, you know? And I, that was just ignorance. I'm thinking like, I got this in me. I can't go. I didn't know it'd be gone that week. That's when I decided 
eventually, I, I guess it took a year for me to find myself. I was going back and forth and stuff. So art, you know, art, not arts, but computers were really becoming big okay. along with the internet. And I went to computer school for two years to get an associate's degree in that. During that time, you know, it was around that time when things started really becoming more adult because I started carrying my son when I was graduating. Um, I already had my own apartment my mom had co-signed for because I was working and going to school and a baby's coming and she ended up moving in with me to help me with my son. Don't even ask about baby daddy. I call him a sperm donor. And I leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> the reason my son meant so much to me was the love I didn't get as a child, I wanted to make up through him. Like yes. I will love him the way I was not loved. Absolutely. You know, I've had the opportunity to, to learn and a, a lot about your son and he's developed into a fine young man you did a, you've done a wonderful job raising him sometimes when we're we're the victim of abuse and neglect uh, and emotional abandonment it's hard for us to to develop the uh and transfer our love to other people you've been able yeah. to through your pain actually cultivate love and sensitivity yeah. and understanding in a very special way now listen so you didn't really begin getting involved with substances until your early twenties. Um, uh -huh. Now there was a there was an incident. In an <laughs> You're gonna be so. There Go was ahead, a, I'm listening. At the same time, were there uh, was there evidence of of mental health? Were you experiencing any depression? Yes. Any, okay, tell tell us about the early. When, um, I took that back. I took that back to high school. I was seeing the school psychiatrist okay. because of my mom. Um, I felt no love as far as family and I needed attention, yeah. you know, um, I got attention. I always, I said, once my brother left and went to jail, he left when I was 12 years old, went to prison. I was like, that's it. Because he was the only one who put focus into me. All my science projects, I'm winning first place. You know, he's there. All, you know, I need to get away from my sister who's calling me a winch, uh, you know, whatever. She called me every name in the book to just keep me away from her. So he grabs me and gets me away. You know, my brother was my protector growing up. And then he leaves. <laughs> yes. And you can yeah. be emotional with us. We, we appreciate your expression because it gives us authentic. It's very authentic the way you describe and how you're, you're experiencing. Uh, some, but it's, some yeah, it's not only that, because mind you, growing up while I was still in D.C., there were killers around me. You know, not just that, but family-wise. I had one uncle kill his brother, you know, and he was embarrassed, so he stabbed him to death. I have another uncle that killed my uncle, you know, he killed his brother's killer and basically did D.C. a favor and went to jail, you know, but... And one uncle that was trying to set job like sexually abusing me, but being little, you don't know that until he was trying to do the same thing when I got older. You know, um, but I dealt with a lot of people, you know, I heard a lot of things, you know, seeing some things, you know, and just it's, it's in the family. The family is very dysfunctional. It's a very dysfunctional family. One thing I recognize, Mr. Rivers, is you do have a significant history of dysfunction and you're breaking that mold. You, based on the action you've taken to heal yourself and to go through a recovery experience, has terminated the transfer of pathology from one generation to the next. Through your healing and through your deliberate involvement with behavioral health services, 
you've been able to protect your son from victimization and exposure. <gasps> and that's, that's, that is, that's really a tribute to you that you had the wherewithal and the strength to empower yourself to stop that transfer of dysfunction. And your son is a living example. And he really symbolizes a good state of health as a result of your efforts. So I'm proud of you and you should be proud of yourself. Listen, there was an accident you were involved in that really, really had an impact in many ways on your life. Can you share with us that that car accident? Yeah, the car accident, my whole life had changed because it was by that time I was 22 years old, right after, no, 23. I was 23 years old, and I bought my house when I was 22. I bought my when, first house. And you were doing really well. You were a homeowner. I was doing really well. Had a good yeah, job, making money. The drug thing wasn't even there yet still. You know, maybe some weed here and there. You know, I wasn't a big weed head and, you know, alcoholic or nothing. But that was soon to come once this happened because... I had a seizure. I once had a seizure before okay. with a car full of children. Oh my! And God. I took them to Six Flags and we were coming home. And while I was parking the car, I just, they said I froze up and passed out. Oh my God. And um, then I was told, oh, you're working too much, too much stress, you know. Like I got a house and stuff. I got to take care of my stuff. The second seizure came when I went to work one day. I didn't even have to go in that day. They was like, we don't need you today. Go ahead and go home. And it was on a Suitland Parkway. Suitland Parkway in Southeast Washington, D.C. While driving, as soon as the light turned green, I blacked out. And they said, I went over the median and hit someone um, doing like 65, 70 miles per hour. I was like, and I didn't remember any of it. I didn't remember any of it. I woke up. Yeah. And so yeah. like. But Ms. Rivers, I understand you were uh, on Suitland Parkway in Washington, D.C., and you had your second major seizure. Is that is that what yeah. I'm hearing? Yeah, this was a grandma. Um, I, as soon as the light turned green right there by Anacostia Station, I went over the median and did a head-on collision, mm-hmm. and I did a complete 180. So it looked like I was going towards D.C. and not the other way. Goodness. That car went across and flipped and some more stuff. Mm-hmm. I woke up in the ambulance. I don't recall any of this happening. None of my bones are broken. I'm just a few scratches. Right. And um, I thought I was actually in heaven because I saw a light when I woke up. And they said, you was in a car accident. You had to calm me down. While I was leaving the hospital, one person did die in that car accident. Okay. The other person mm-hmm. was, I heard their, their heart go flat while I was leaving. But they, they pulled through. Okay. So it was after that, because that's when, you know, at first I didn't know the car. They said that, you know, it was the car accident wasn't my fault. A couple days later, I found out it was my fault. And I just, there were no words. My light, my um, license was suspended because I lost coverage, um, insurance coverage. And if you're driving with no insurance coverage, they will suspend your license. So that was their way of saying, well, you shouldn't have been driving anyway. Okay. So that's how they, they, they pinned it on me that way. This trauma experience kind of uh, lended itself to kind of attach itself to your ongoing mental health distress. You already had some anxiety, you had some self-esteem issues has, and, and depression. Now you have this traumatic car accident that resulted in loss of life. And it also resulted in a very critical injury to you. Is that right? The injury I had was <laughs> epilepsy. I am uh, epileptic, and that still wasn't discovered until the third seizure. And they was like, okay, you have epilepsy. 
I was starting to be given medication and none of the medication would work to the point where I had to have an EEG and a brain scan. Part of my brain stopped growing, which was causing the seizures. And I can only imagine, you know, I could, I had a concussion when I was little, you know, those merry-go-rounds, there's a reason they don't make them no more. <laughs> Cause I flew off the merry-go-round when I was little and I was, I went unconscious. It could have been that. Stop. What was the treatment required for, for that epilepsy? Um, brain surgery. That was the that, only thing. You had brain could, surgery. Yeah. I had to have brain surgery. Oh my goodness. And that was the only thing that could control the seizures to the point where medication would work. That's just, so I'm on medication for life to not have seizures. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, now I understand uh, through your, uh, through your story, and it, I think it's described in your book, that as a result of this incident, you, you had to spend some time in, in prison. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, Martha Stewart was leaving while I was going in. Okay. Um, what was the conviction? What were you convicted of? Negligent homicide is on my record. For life. And how much and time did you serve? I, it, I was sentenced to three years, so I did a year and a half. And I did, you know, community service, and gosh, I paid so much money. <laughs> it was just so many things, and I couldn't get a license for three years, and a lot of things were taken from me that way. I had to sell my house. Went from a nice house to renting my friend's bedroom, me and my son. You went from entrepreneur homeowner. And I want to remind everyone, you were a young woman. You were in your early 20s and you were getting it. You were really, it had a good flow. So you had a home. Uh, you had a wonderful career. We're going to talk more about your career. Things were going very, very well. You were on the top of the hill. And then you have this unfortunate accident, which really just changed everything for you. So you go from the top yeah. of the hill to waking up in a federal institution. Is that what you're, to, you're yeah. telling the audience? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What impact did that incarceration stay have on your mental health? Well, <laughs> it's funny because um, before the prison, I visited DC jail quite a few times <laughs> because of this. Because after the accident, um, I had two years in between going to prison before the court date. So I had two years. During those two years is when I sold my house and moved to Washington, D.C., because my house is in Maryland. I moved to Washington, D.C., um, and started, you know, got on welfare, started doing things I hadn't done before, you know, like the pandemic, when you lose all and you got to start from scratch. I put my furniture out for the people to come get. thing I was left with was my, I, I gave my mom my living room furniture because that, oh, that meant my heart, you know, <laughs> but everything else. I was just like, no, okay. it's just me and my son. And he's four years old. As a result of losing everything, you just kind of spiraled into just complete despair. That I don't give a fuck moment. And, and dysfunction, that. right? Exactly. That's the and, and that's when the substance use increased. That's when your, your mental health deteriorated mm -hmm. and things just got out of control. And I'm having seizures while it's all happening because and no you're medication. Still having is medical, yeah. When you were able to receive some mental health services, now this is pre-pandemic, this is where you would walk into the clinic and you would talk with someone face-to-face. -face. Were you receiving any support and services during this time? But, um, <laughs> you you want to start there? Right. So you never even thought, you never even thought to engage with mental health services then? When I first started, 
um, a mental health health service. It wasn't until after prison. Okay. Because I, I got mental, I got, you really don't get too much mental health in prison. Your thing is to just keep your guard up. You know, even at a female prison, because bitches talk, you know, and you be wanting to fight. Mm-hmm. They even get in your face, but you got to remember, if you fight, that's more time. Right. You won't be going home to your son, mm-hmm. you know? So that was my focus in there. Okay, okay. And coming home, it was about how do I start over? Because I went from house to this, and now I'm sharing. I went from prison, sharing a bunk bed, to coming home and sharing a bunk bed. Just this time, just with my son. Yeah. You know, and now I'm disabled. I know nothing about it. So I have to go through all the disabled connections. I already applied for SSTI, but they had denied me. So I had to apply with them again and get lawyers. You know, it's like, it's so many steps that you have to take. And taking those steps, you have to be right up here, you know, Mm -hmm. to be able Mm -hmm. to handle it. And I was handling it, but at the same time, I was getting ready for brain surgery. They were going to take out a piece of my brain. So part of me thought, I was like, I'm not going to die, but I probably won't come back the same. So how do I figure that out? And I didn't come back the same. I really didn't. You know, I had to wear an eye patch. One side of my body wasn't working like the other side. You know, things had to adjust. Depression was like, hey, homie. You know, it's just because nobody want me like this. It's that insecurity becomes, this is a real insecure, you know? And then I started seeing people to help me with my discipline. As, as far as my mental, you know, I started going over to this, um, let me see, I would see the doctor and it was like, well, you need to see a therapist, you know, they have therapy and, you know, and all of a sudden you just need someone to talk to. Can't talk to nobody in my family. So at that time you, you had, you had to walk out into a outpatient facility and you go through enrollment and admission and you have regular appointments. Now, uh, during the pandemic, I think the primary service method is telemedicine, right? And so what's, how does that feel receiving most of your support through, <laughs> through the phone, through Zoom? It, is, um, is it... My, my uh, neurologist, I had an option. They was like, do you want to do him, you know, over the phone or do you want to come in? I was like, I'll come in. They was like, you got to wait longer. That's fine. I'll wait an extra two weeks. Because some things, even though I see you through screen, you can't really exp- show everything. Like, they want to pull your fingers to make sure you can pull back. I can't do that through them damn. Is the same thing true for your mental health services? Are you receiving that mostly through telemedicine or do you still go into the clinic? Mental health, that has, that's really, that's a sad story. Tell us about it, please. I mean, it took a minute for me to really control it. I didn't, I didn't get started to because I was doing the marijuana and stuff during my 20s. And I had then, even after the brain surgery, mm-hmm. I did not want to give up on like my artwork and give up on, you know, doing something with what I have. You know, like I got it. I figured I can't go back to regular work. I got to do something. I can't sit on my butt and just collect social security. Right. You know, I didn't want to become that loather that lives off the government. You know, that was my fear. I didn't want to become that right. and have to do something. And um, just the depression of not being able to feel like you, don't, you can't get anywhere and you can't do anything. And then you start to say, F it. I'll hustle drugs. <laughs> I need money. It takes money to make money. Right. I joined a group 
for black artists. I do this. And then I want to sell pictures. And I start getting my pictures hung up, you know, down streets and stuff. But it takes money to make money. Did some artwork for some celebrities and some famous people. I understand that you were really doing portraits of us. Yeah. Can you share us Um, what that was like? It was terrible because (laughs) it was by this time you get into the, this is now in my 30s. Now in my 20s, mind you, all that happened that we just spoke about was in my early 20s. I did not have the brain surgery till I was 27 years old. Mm. And um, then I started, I wrote my first book at 29, which was nothing but poetry. What's the name of that book? Poetic Epileptic. Oh, wow. And um, it's all my poetry because I used to host poetry nights. And there's a lot of things I did. I hosted poetry nights at the, um, it was Bar None back then. Now there's, what's that thing that's everywhere? Oh, Bus Boys. Bus Boys and Poets. And, um, you know, just do all that stuff as far as writing. And I was trying to do something with my writing and my art. Mm -hmm. I was like, obviously these are something because my brain surgery didn't take them away. Right. So let me focus on that. I can still do computers. I can still do computers. Right. But you have to stay in school as far as computers go because everything changes like that. Mm -hmm. And it was hard for me to keep up because I knew what to do, but I couldn't pass tests because of questions and, you know, things like that because of my memory. So, yeah, my short-term memory now. So, Miss um, so Rivers, let, let me let me let me move the discussion. So, I didn't know you authored two books. So, your first book yeah. was a book of poems, and yeah. then you decided uh, at some point. I want to hear what what moved you to focus on your, your newest project. But you've just written a book entitled "Hey Home Girl." Yeah. Um, and so, what moved you and motivated you and influenced you to to write another book? And tell us about the book. Sobriety, being sober, is what wow. moved me to write that book. During my 30s is when I started messing with other drugs. You know, I started hanging with the crowd as far as I was trying to make money to promote my, my book and my artwork, mm-hmm. driving back and forth to a gallery here and there in Baltimore. It takes, and I'm not even driving. You know, I got to pay for rides. I got money. I got to pay. So... I was, it wasn't nothing but weed, and um, then I started hustling boat. <laughs> I was hustling boat, and I started using it. I started using it, and this was around the age 32, and that's when I started doing those effort drugs that go well, that then, oh well attitude. And then, then obviously, at some point, you went into, uh, I would imagine, some substance abuse treatment, and then you, mm-hmm. you committed to recovery and sobriety, and is that yeah. when the revelation to write the book happened? Yes, because it took a long time for me to be sober, completely sober. Um, right. I did stop the the boat. What is, what's it called? The what's the other name for it? PCP. I know it's boat, there you go, PCP. Because PCP is primary care physician. So <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'll be looking at it like this came from PCP. Oh yeah, primary care. <laughs> so your clarity came uh during your sobriety and then you it, you decided you're going to write this book what was the purpose of the book what are you hoping to uh to share with the readers of your your book really what i was hoping to share is that i had learned through na meetings and such 
that there are so many worse stories than yours, baby. So you have no excuse. Mm. You really have no excuse. Mm. You know, I heard stories in there. I was like, damn, I thought I was up. You know? <laughs> and I thought I sucked so many. Oh, I thought I. <laughs> and it made me become comfortable with myself because I looked down on myself so bad. Mm. My mom had chose a crackhead over me. Right. And here I am smoking the shit with weed, you know? And right. who am I to judge people when I'm doing the same thing or worse? You know, that sort of thing. How long did it take you to write the book? Oh, just a few months. It really didn't take long because um, I got to step four in NA. Okay. And I had to check myself. Yeah. What was it about me? It's just, what was it about me that I needed to get out? You can't tell everybody everything. That's why I wrote. I was raised at that time where a child stays in a child's place. Mm -hmm. You know, you need to be seen, not heard. You know, right. so I couldn't go to my mom and tell her I had this problem at school or this is going on. I mean, there are times when I did try, but they didn't. Oh, what the hell are you telling me for? Or that's your problem. Or, you know, stuff like that. So you can't really tell people things and that's where psychiatry and therapy and those things had to come in its place they come in your parents place they come in your friendships place because what do they have to lose by listening to you hell they get paid to listen to you so, now, yeah. now listen this book I, I guess there's a process where you write the book and you have to find editors and publishers and that's a whole process because there's a business aspect to this now the book I imagine was launched when? When did you actually release the book? The book got on um, the internet in August of last in year while I was in the hospital. I was so, in the hospital so, when it got there. I want everyone to appreciate you launched the book during the pandemic. Yeah, but you know what? It's not just that, but um, I got the book deal in February of 2020 before the pandemic even you know, was an issue. They gave me a deal and stuff. I checked a couple. I, I went to two book people and I sent them the copy. And I just said, let me know if you can publish me and we can go from there. And they came back like so, not even a week later. So so when you got when you got offered the, the publishing deal, did you imagine uh, that the pandemic might interfere with release? Not and at all. And sales, has it had an impact on sales or your projections around sales? That's where the internet and the computer comes into play because I can't go out there and do book signings. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's say I, somebody told me to do a book signing. I was like, where? I'm going to prop it up in the street and face mask and sign. And, you know, it's just, it doesn't feel like that would do anything for me. And then when you're self-published, you got to buy the books to make the money back. So I have to buy a few hundred books and price them to get my money back and such. But how is that going to happen if I don't sell first? Yeah. So during a pandemic, it's pretty complicated because yeah. you, ha you, you have limited speaking engagements. They're just what you would normally do to market your product. Uh, you can't do most of that uh, because it, it requires some face-to-face -face engagement. Yeah. And so now yeah. everything's internet and, and um, social and radio. media and radio, right? Yeah. Uh, I but, did have but I want to really... I want to encourage the audience to, to, to purchase the book. We're going to uh, make sure you have the contact information at the conclusion of this podcast because mm -hmm. it's a powerful testimony of struggle and, and how you can pull yourself out with the right supports and the right attitude and the right motivation um, from a crisis state into a thriving state. 
life for you right now uh, is really going well. Uh, I want to go back before we we conclude. I want you to tell the audience about this this portrait you drew of a very famous, and you've done several, uh, mm -hmm. but there was some rejection involved with this portrait. You did a, a, a portrait of a, a celebrity, and you sent yeah. that to that that person in New York, I believe. Yeah. And uh, yeah. can you tell us briefly about that? Um, I actually went to New York, and I went on her show, and I um I had a picture of it that I gave to them. And they contacted me saying, hey, we love the picture. Send it up here. We'll pay for it. Great. Maybe she'll give me a, a holla, you know. And um, they got it. You know, I sent it up there. They didn't even call to tell me thank you. I had to call and ask them, did they receive it? Does she, you know, and I don't even know if she liked it or not. So um, <laughs> there are times where there's some rejection. And, uh, you know, we don't. Oh, there's been to... many rejection times. Yeah, what comes to my art. Because I've sent my work to certain people that are up there. Because it takes you to. You got to know somebody to know somebody to know somebody. I even snuck on White House grounds one time, you know, was with certain people there when I had my first book showing. You know, you got to know people. And all that's in my book as far as the things I've done. But so, yeah. Ms. Rivers, how do you keep yourself grounded and healthy during this pandemic right now? What are you doing to, uh, to keep yourself stable and focused on your, on your mission? I love my Yorkie. He is my therapy dog. And uh, yeah, I will cry because I've spent so much money on this little boy <laughs> or his leg surgery, whatever it's, that's my boo. He's my other son. My my son, he's graduating from college this year. Look at that. Wow. His full, his full um, scholarship for computer science. And I'm proud of that too, because he was on my lap yeah. while I was fixing computers. Look at that. When I was doing are you, those things. Are you telling me he had a full scholarship? Yes, a full scholarship. Wow. Because I was on him hard. I might have been out there doing drugs and all that stuff. And Sean knew, a, he knew a lot of stuff. My son knew a lot of stuff. You know, I'm not going to lie about that because I wouldn't hide everything from him because you will find out eventually. You know, things parents hide from you, eventually the child will find out. And it's not a good way for them to find out. We definitely want to give a shout out to you, Sean. Uh, for also having his experience and sharing some yeah. of his experience with you. That is such a best story that not only you are you fully anchored in recovery and stability, but he's about to launch into a very successful yeah. career. And that's yeah. I can't I can't say any more than wow, that is just remarkable how you've been able to parent him and guide him and nurture him and develop him into a strong black man. And a lot I did while I was high. Yeah, okay. All right, I got you. I got but you. But I was focused, man. Yeah. Miss <laughs> Rivers, I want to really, again, in closing, highlight this book. Can you can you share with us the, the title of the book and where the audience can purchase this book? Okay, the title, again, is Hey, Homegirl. It was recently, you know, promoted on WPGC. Um, you can find it heyhomegirl.net, and I am on Instagram on these two pages, um, at Artistic Brains and at Lachelle Rivers, as far as that go. And, you know, go fund me, you know, because right. I'm trying to go back to art school. Yeah. I need Tell to me about the GoFundMe page. What your expectation with that is what? Art college. I want to go to Corcoran Arts, mm -hmm. which is, I tried that before arts, before computer school. Art school is very expensive. And my parents, they were broke, but made too much money for me to get a scholarship. <laughs> so, but my true love is art. 
you know, and if I could do this on my own and not learning, you know, imagine what I could do if I went to school. Yes. So can you share with us the GoFund page again? GoFundMe um, page. GoFundMe.com, Art School One, Art School One. Yeah. Okay. So I encourage uh, the audience to support Ms. Rivers as she continues her journey uh, and so that she can fully embrace her passion and her vision for herself. Um, what is the best way for people to reach you? What's how, how can people contact you directly? Oh, contact me directly. It's funny how you can Google a person's name and their phone number pops up. <laughs> or just Facebook me. Um, message me through Facebook, you know, because I'm Lachelle Rivers on Facebook. Okay. And, um, you know, Instagram me, all that stuff, you know, because okay. I'm very, even if you go to my website, write me there and I come back at you. I will come back to you. Did you put any artwork in your book? Did you do any of the artwork? Yes. Yes. My artwork is in my book and it's on my website, okay. which is heyhomegirl.net. Yeah. But yeah, pictures that have, I painted a picture of Miss O. There's two Miss O's. You know, one was in the White House. I even sent it to the White House. Okay. Police came for me at the White House. <laughs> <laughs> I have some interesting, some real big stories that he were like, no, she didn't. But yeah. Right. That's yeah. right. Well, listen, in closing, I wanted you to share a statement with those folks who are watching this podcast who are caught in the grip of addiction and don't know their way out or just caught in deep despair, sadness, depression, and, and don't know how to get back into the game. Okay. Encourage them by, by giving them some information or, or some words. Just, just share something with the audience or giving them some hope. What can you say? Yeah, what I can say is there is that time where you can go to so that you really want to be clean. You want to be, but you don't want to be. Because you know if you are clean, you're going to have to deal with stuff. And you don't want to deal with it. You just keep going to meetings. You keep going to 30-day trials. Keep going to in-house, outpatient, inpatient. Time comes. You could go to a meeting and just leave the meeting and go smoke. You know, so what was the purpose of going to it? You know, and you will get tired of that. And it would take years. For some people, the easy long takes, you know, for some it takes 13 times, 7 times, 6 times. But you got to keep doing it. And the fate, it will come. Because you'd be like, you know what? I'm tired of this shit. You're always in that tunnel, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel. It's up to you if you want to walk to the light or stay stuck. Each person has to decide for themselves when they're sick and tired and want to implement yeah. a change. So the good news is people can change. People can recover. Can recover. Mm -hmm. People can heal. Uh, yeah. But it takes a lot of work. So I don't want to minimize it's not just oh, a decision. Oh, so it takes a lot of work. You, you have to put in the work. Around. You have to engage with services. You got to follow yeah. a treatment regimen. You got to do things differently. In fact, they tell me in the rooms that you got to put the same effort into your recovery that you used in, in your addiction. And yes. we know that the addictive lifestyle requires a lot. You have to put in a lot of time to master it. And that's it. where the problem comes in with as far as NA meetings be like, one time it only takes you an hour to go to an meeting and you're good for the rest of the day. Now you're going to have to stay on that Zoom for a few hours. Look at that. Because yeah. you're not around people. That's you can't right. get no hugs. Yeah. You can't, you know, fit, you know, it's not there. Mm -hmm. So what used to take one hour would take maybe a whole day for you now. Yeah. So thank you, Ms. Rivers, for sharing your stories. It's just a powerful story. It's a testament of empowerment. And again, I want to encourage the audience to get that book. It's the book, Hey Home Girl. Hey Home Girl. Miss Rivers, we appreciate you. 
we respect you, we care about you, we love you, man, we love you. And, and maybe at another point, we'll have uh, be able to invite you to another forum or another uh, engagement. Uh, because again, yeah. I think you can encourage and promote and empower people who maybe feel that there is no opportunity or reason to even live. And so we thank oh, you I'm and we celebrate life with you. I'm glad we didn't get to that part. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So thank you again. And for the audience, we thank you for spending time with, with Ms. Rivers and I. Again, it's Lachelle Rivers. Her book is Home. Hey, Home Girl. And uh, I know you've enjoyed this time. If you want more Yeah, just Google my name. You can Google my name and see everything. I'm popular on Gmail. Yeah. I mean, I'm mean, on Google. So, like, yeah. Okay. And we know that. And if they want more information about Prestige, just hit us up at prestigecommunityresources.com.org. And there's a whole lot of information about projects and initiatives and, and things that the, the agency is doing to promote good health. Ms. Rivers, peace and blessings. And if I don't see you soon, be safe, be well. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>